Thanks for checking out this podcast from SWGFL. We're here to help teachers and education professionals support children and young people in all that they do online. Just to avoid any confusion, in autumn of 2022, we branded our podcasts as Interface. This is actually one of our older episodes from before the big rebrand, so it might sound a little bit different. However, there's still the same top quality advice and expert support throughout. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to this Safeguarding Children online podcast brought to you by SWGFL. Welcome to the SWGFL podcast, the free definitive guide helping educators keep young people and yourselves safe online. SWGFL is a partner in the UK Safer Internet Centre. We are a charity dedicated to empowering the safe and secure use of technology through innovative services, tools, content and policy, both nationally and globally. My name's Gareth Court. I'm an online safety consultant for SWGFL, and I'm delighted to be joined here today with Chief Superintendent Nick Adams, National Coordinator for Prevent. Hi, Nick. Hello. Hello, welcome. So I'm uh, delighted to have Nick with me here today to talk about the role of uh, the police's prevent teams and also the ongoing online risks of radicalisation and terrorism. We're also going to be discussing how the current situation about around COVID-19, lockdown and school closures has also impacted on this really important area. So Nick, welcome. I think a good place to start is if you could explain further uh, a little bit about who you are, what you do, as well as the role of the prevent teams in the police and also how you work with partners such as schools. Okay, well, thanks very much, Gareth, and thanks to uh, everybody for tuning in and listening to me. Hopefully, I can uh, share some information today that will uh, help people uh, as part of our kind of national partnership to keep people safe from online radicalisation. My role uh, is as the National Police Lead for Prevent, so I coordinate the work across the country of Prevent officers based in uh, regional units, and, um, and those officers are essentially the front line of uh, the police's work uh, in Prevent, and they will work with local authorities, directly with schools in some instances, with local charities um, and with other partners to make sure that we have uh, things in place that help people to recognise the signs of radicalisation uh, and things in place that help people to make referrals of uh, those that they're concerned about into Prevent, and then those partnerships come together to provide the sort of interventions and support that hopefully diverts people away from a path of radicalization that could potentially take them towards terrorism. And I, and I say hopefully because uh, Prevent is a voluntary program. It is designed to support people using all of the well-established safeguarding uh, principles that exist across other areas of, um, of public protection and it can only be successful with both the support of the public and also the trust of those that need our help and support. I suppose I've been a police officer now for just over 20 years. I've spent most of my career working in neighbourhood policing and partnerships. So I really understand how we need to contribute as police officers to those partnerships. I've also spent lots of time in my spare time as a chair of governors of uh, a large inner city school. Uh, so really understand the challenges that um, colleagues 
in education face in trying to keep young people safe from all sorts of harms. And I, and I try and bring all of those things together uh, into my role to help shape the work that we're doing in Prevent. Fantastic. And as you said there, having having worked as a governor as well, you've you've seen sort of both sides of the coin, if you like, of, of both life inside the school and, of course, on the outside, trying to support schools, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, th- things like referrals, which we're going to come to a little bit later in this podcast, a really important process and, and a way of sort of getting people the help at the right time that they might need. Uh, but before we dive into that, I, I think it might just be good to, to talk about radicalisation in the UK. Are you seeing a, a more prominent ideology in the UK? And if so, what do you think is driving those narratives? Over I suppose, the last few years, uh, there's been a big focus on the threat from uh, ISIS and Islamist ideologies that they're, they're pushing. And that threat hasn't gone away, even though uh, forces from around the world have obviously successfully uh, taken out big swathes of ISIS-controlled territory uh, overseas. So The challenge for us in that is this sort of enduring legacy of radicalising material and propaganda that that ISIS produced and that they put online. And that information, that that propaganda continues to be shared on online platforms. And there are individuals who continue to try and radicalise others using that material through chat forums uh, and through posts, etc. So, uh, you know, sustained and continued threat. And, And I think we'll we'll hopefully chat a little bit more about COVID and, and the relevance of COVID on that, but still as relevant today as, it, as it's ever been. But in the last couple of years, what we've also seen is a really significant rise in the activity and the threat coming from uh, extreme right-wing groups. And those groups are equally now globally connected across the internet and are uh, driving hate-filled narratives to, uh, again, try and radicalise people into joining their groups, joining their organisations, and in some cases, um, engaging in uh, acts of terrorism. And whilst on the right-wing, extreme right-wing side of things, we see less individuals willing to take those really significant steps. So there is a kind of lower volume of the highest risk individuals compared to uh, ISIS risk. But at the same time, where that risk exists the activity and the harm that could be caused in, in the form of a sort of terrorist attack or terrorist event is as significant. So we are in no way complacent about the growth of that right-wing threat, and we're doing everything we can to, to mitigate that and to use PREVENT as part of uh, the UK's approach to mitigate that in the same way that we do with Islamist-related threats. And have you seen uh, the, these particular ideologies hiding in, in certain types of content, I, I mean, I can remember recalling, uh, particularly around November time and sort of remembrance celebrations that the extreme far right groups might jump on things like the poppy appeal in the UK as a way of sort of pushing messages a little bit sort of undercover. And similarly, um, Islamic State groups have used other types of content to push their messages around certain celebratory periods or reflective periods in countries' timelines. Is is that something that you've seen happening a lot? Is it is it always that subtle or is it a bit more overt, if you like? So I suppose extremist groups will... They'll use anything they can to try and motivate people to joining their cause. So, uh, you know, at their core, they are about uh, sowing fears, amplifying people's fears and anxieties, driving hate between different groups. So creating a sense that you as an individual have been wronged by somebody else um, and that they're doing harm to you. And that in order to deal with your fear, deal with your anxiety, deal with that harm, what you've got to do is join a particular group because that's the only mechanism you've got available to you. Government's not listening to you. Local authorities aren't listening to you. It's that sort of narrative and that sort of approach that 
radicalizers will take. So as you described, it doesn't really matter what the issue is. They will jump on the bandwagon and try and exploit absolutely anything that can draw people in. So in the, you know, in the case of COVID, we've seen individuals talking about, uh, sort of radicalizing individuals, that is, talking about Muslims still going to mosque in defiance of the government's lockdown protocols, or Jews still going to the synagogue, or Sikhs still going to the temple, because right-wing groups are seeking to drive that kind of fear and hatred. And then what they're saying is, oh, look, the police aren't doing anything about it. The government aren't doing anything about it. What you need to do is to come and join our group. And, and we together then will, will kind of fight this wrong that's harming you, your community, your family. You know, as the years progress, as different things come in contextually, or as you described, as kind of annual events come to bear, those groups will always seek to exploit whatever they think will work in, in pulling people towards them. And I, I think you're absolutely right. It's I've seen some examples in the last couple of months, uh, you know, obviously based on, on lockdown and COVID-19 and the fears around that, particularly targeting the Muslim communities. And one classic example that just highlights exactly what you said about, about misinformation and the way that it can be used to, to subvert messages is that I think someone tweeted that the, the mosque in Salisbury was still open and people were still attend, attending services there, to which local police then later informed people on Twitter that actually there isn't a mosque in Salisbury at all. So it's, it's that kind of that weaving of misinformation as well then to to kind of subvert messages yeah absolutely and what what we want people to do is to um you know you're not going to be able to make yourself immune to coming into contact with this information but what we need people to do and then this is particularly relevant to young people which is where the risk for us exists with schools being closed at the moment and universities and colleges all being closed is that we need people to when they come across some of that information to engage with it and to deconstruct it to challenge it to do their own research and to come up with their own uh, assessment of you know what is true and what isn't and and invariably the sorts of information as you've dis- described there the sorts of deliberate false information that circulated can be quickly disproven if only people take the time to actually look at the wider issue go and look at some mainstream news sites that may have covered that particular story or do your own research as you've described with uh, with Salisbury and ordinarily teachers and education professionals would be helping young people to navigate some of that stuff and the, the real worry for me at the moment is that um, families often won't know what their young people are looking at online throughout the course of the day if they're not having conversations about what young people are looking at online will those sorts of constructive discussions about false information be taking place and and anything that we can do as professionals and some of it is is raising awareness uh, through kind of national and local media uh, interviews raising awareness with families so they they can understand some of those risks and have those conversations or or getting people onto some of the websites online that will help families and parents uh, to work with their young people to digest and critique information or indeed getting families and parents uh, involved with their local safeguarding leads at schools to get advice and support with this stuff. Um, it's just really, really important that people pick apart the sorts of information that's online and don't accept anything uh, at face value. Really good point there. And I, I, th- I think also the point about discussion and, and working together both you know, in communities and, and for young people as well is really key. Just a couple of fact-checking websites that we can just include at this point that might be useful for listeners. Two very good ones. One is the BBC's Reality Check, who are doing a very good job at the moment in terms of picking apart what public figures may have said online. And there's also a fact-checking uh, charity in the UK called Full Fact, who also have uh, lots of good information on their website. So there's, as Nick said, lots and lots of sources of information out there to actually give you the whole picture and to, and to you know, sort of do a reality check on these stories. But as, as Nick rightly said, you've got to go and have a look. Nick, just thinking about that content and how it reaches 
people online, particularly on social media. Some people have felt that, that things such as social media algorithms or the concept of creating echo chambers online um, are causal factors that can really influence people being drawn into um, extremism or into radicalization. Have you seen any evidence of this? Well, we know, I suppose, that, as, I, as I've touched on, that radicalizers will seek to pull people into those, those sorts of chat forums or, or echo chambers as they effectively become. And, and we've seen, particularly where perhaps individuals aren't as susceptible to hate-filled narratives, as some, there are other, other hooks that are used. Sometimes it might be discussions around things that we would describe as conspiracy theories. So the suggestion that 5G technology is, has been responsible for causing COVID. People drawn in because they're interested in, in talking about that into then a chat room that actually within there is only individuals of a like mind, but are actually focused on a, a wider hate agenda. And once somebody's into that chat room and they're only surrounded by people who share uh, similar views, it's very, very difficult. It becomes more difficult for people to discern what is truth and what isn't. So there's, there's something, I suppose, first and foremost, about people being aware that you are potentially putting yourself into a closed chat forum that's only available to certain members and the risks that, that come with that. And that's you know, particularly relevant for, for parents in working with and supporting young people to make good and healthy decisions about some of that stuff. And then I think more broadly to your point around you know, artificial intelligence, we all know that algorithms are designed in our everyday lives as we're using social media to litter uh, the world in front of us with uh, things that we might, we might want to buy based upon our previous choices. And those algorithms will work in the same way, whether it's looking at groups we might want to join or connections into groups that we might want to join. And, and sometimes that's stuff that we are contributing to ourselves. If we've shown a particular interest in certain things, we're more likely to see content suggested to us in relation to the, those same things. So it's really important that, as we do in the UK, we continue to work with internet service providers and social media platforms to make sure their software and their algorithms aren't suggesting things that contain harmful content. And I think we've seen some, you know, some great work being done. I think we heard from Mark Zuckerberg talking about the work that Facebook is doing to make sure that people aren't drawn towards harmful content and then taking that content down where it exists. But the, you know, the, the, the important thing is making sure that we not only work with those, but that we work with individuals to make sure that they recognize when some of this stuff is, is being presented to them. And that's all about then making good choices and taking yourself out of that space. Really good point there. And actually, that raises another interesting point about the social networks and the online platforms on, on which this content's posted and shared. You said that obviously the police were doing some great work helping inform their, their algorithms, helping you know, potentially give their moderators the information to know how to evaluate content that may be reported to them, be it hate speech or be it terrorist content or, or else. Interestingly, at, at the time of recording this podcast, France have recently passed a law giving internet service providers and websites a one-hour time limit for removing content that police deem to be terrorist content or child sexual abuse content. Do you think that kind of law might be helpful in the UK for combating radicalisation or can you see any challenges around that? Of course, anything that helps us to take down material really, really quickly, harmful material, is is a good thing. And, and one of the things that we really uh, struggle with in the UK and, and we, we would want to always uh, balance is, is that sort of right to free speech and the fine line that that we get to when information online is considered political versus extremist or terrorist in nature. So we're always treading a really fine, fine balance with that. And, and the decision-making process that determines whether or not something is extremist or is a sort of mainstream political view that we might just disagree with it is a difficult one. And that's you know certainly one for the government to wrestle with and, and for government to decide where the pendulum should sit. 
what you know we would always want to do is to co- continue to work with companies so we make sure the stuff that is really really harmful is taken down and in the UK in CT policing within the UK we have a department a function that's called the Counterterrorism Internet Referral Unit that was set up back in 2010 now and it was back in, in those days it was one of the first if not the first uh, globally doing this sort of work and, and that unit looks to remove terrorist material and propaganda that is circulated on the internet and when things are recirculated names of files or folders or images are changed and they're recirculated that unit works tirelessly to find that material and to remove it from the internet and the public can report stuff that they find online directly to us that enables us um, to both remove the content and also to work with those internet service providers to get them to take that material down and what we're seeing at the moment uh, is huge support from internet service providers and a willingness to engage in that and if we can get to a point where material is taken down really quickly whether an hour is realistic in every single occasion I'm you know I'm not sure there are some times where things that need to be assessed and reviewed are owned by huge or been hosted by huge companies and, and in those cases we can quickly work with them to remove that material in other cases you know where, where something isn't part one of these big national multinational providers that might be more difficult but you know ultimately making sure that we've got the support of organizations who recognize the risk and the harm that this material is causing then i think we'll continue to do a great work in in removing these uh, these bits of material I totally agree. And I think you've highlighted really nicely there the importance of, again, of this being a collaborative process in, in terms of helping prevent people being drawn into, into terrorism, but also seeing this kind of content as well. So it's it's online users on platforms, but it is the platforms themselves. It's government, it's police, it's schools, it's, it's everybody working together to, to try and help each other. And I think you also made a really good point there about service providers. You know, we, we often think about this and, and, you know, a law in France about giving providers an hour to take stuff down. You think about the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, and they, they have the capacity and they have the ability to, to do that potentially. If you think about other smaller platforms, as you mentioned, or uh, platforms that are more liberal in terms of promoting freedom of expression, things like 4chan and 8chan, suddenly it becomes yeah. a bit trickier as to whether or not that content would, would be removed and how quickly. And uh, again, we saw evidence of this, didn't we, with the Christchurch shootings and how, although that content was only online for a very short period of time, it managed to spread incredibly far. And even though the mainstream social networks were doing their best to, to, to block it and take it down wherever possible, just being online for 20 minutes or so was enough for it to spread far and wide. So it, it does kind of show that we all need to be really vigilant. Yeah, and the UK has a great relationship with countries like Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand, working collaboratively with those big companies to make sure that you know they're supporting in our work. And as you said, you know, collaboration, really, really important uh, in this stuff. And whilst ever we've got collaboration, then legislation is is less necessary, I suppose. And at the moment, we're you know we're seeing some some really good things happening. I think it's a case of let's continue to to watch this space. Let's see and, and learn from the impact that the French legislation potentially has. Uh, and I'm sure government here will will consider any of the tools that will make the UK a safer place. Brilliant. Really important. So, so something definitely to keep an eye on. Nick, if we just turn our attention to, to the current situation and the uh, new normal, I guess, as it is in inverted commas at the moment. You've mentioned COVID-19 and the effects of that in terms of linking the disease with particular religious groups, such as you know, the Muslim community. And I, I've seen evidence as well of the Jewish community being implicated in, in spreading COVID-19. Are there any other current threats that have popped up in terms of radicalisation in this current climate? Well, we've still seen ISIS using COVID-19 as a part of their propaganda. So arguing and and encouraging people to strike whilst Western countries are weak and struggling to cope with the impact of COVID. So trying to encourage and incite people to go out and carry acts of 
terror now, you know, encouraging those acts of terror to take place where people are still meeting and gathering and where it will create most fear, you know, stuff that we would have anticipated. But the bigger challenges, I think, that COVID presents for us, because these narratives and, and lines that are used by extremist groups and terrorists will continue to change and adapt. The bigger challenge for us is kind of perfect storm in some respects that that sits within. So what do I mean by that? There I'm talking about the nature of the, of the propaganda and how it's used and how relevant it feels to people now, but also then um, the increased amounts of time that people are spending as a result of COVID, isolated, in lockdown, perhaps spending more time online on the internet to entertain themselves, that greater risk of the stuff we've already talked about, about people being drawn into online chat forums where they are then sat within an echo chamber of these things. Essentially, people living in this sort of video game world where where reality is distorted because we're not going out and mixing with people and chatting to people and talking things through and doing all the things that we would normally do. And then you layer on the final bit of the, the jigsaw, which is then the reduction in the support that is normally available to people. And some of that is, is as I've discussed about schools and colleges and universities being there to support young people. But it's also about mental health services, local authorities, social care, a reduction in all of those services because people been diverted into dealing with COVID or have been reducing their face-to-face -face contact with people as a result of the kind of public health concerns. So we've got this perfect storm, if you like, of, of changing risks that feel really real to people, increased isolation, and then the lack of protective factors. And those things coming together for me create a real and sustained now escalating risk of radicalization during COVID. And it, there's no immediate end to that. Schools are unlikely, I think, to, to return to any sort of sense of, uh, of normal until September, October time. That's an awful long time from March of young people spending increased time online, potentially being drawn further and further and further into radicalisation. So as a, as a result of that, have you seen a drop in prevent referral numbers since lockdown restrictions were put in place? So as you'd expect, really, the referrals that we would normally get from schools and colleges and universities have dropped significantly because colleagues are not having the professional and personal contact with young people that they would, uh, that they would normally have. And it's not dissimilar in many ways to what we would see over a normal summer holiday period where institutions are closed for, for weeks upon end. It was unexpected in the sense that we didn't expect COVID to come along, but the impact of that is, is tried and tested really in terms of the work that, that we would do in the run-up to school holidays and then after school holidays where we would see referrals quickly returning and pretty much every year within four weeks of schools returning after the summer holidays, we have a higher level of referrals than we do before the holidays, which tells me that we make back a, a lot of that, uh, that ground in uh, colleagues identifying people who are, who are vulnerable, who potentially have been subject to radicalisation and who, who need help and support. So the work for us now is making sure that colleagues across the education sector in particular, as we get towards the, uh, the time when schools and colleges return, that they understand the sorts of material that's been out there, some of the stuff I've, we've talked about already, that we understand and we share with them what impact we think that's likely to have so that colleagues are really well placed to be able to spot worrying conversations, worrying behaviour in the school environment that might indicate that somebody is on that radicalisation journey and needs early intervention, help and support. And I think it's by doing that, that when schools return, we will be able to quickly identify those that need our help and get the help to them. Thanks, Nick. I think that's a, a really important point because myself and colleagues have, have been discussing, both amongst ourselves and also with schools, the importance of, of safeguarding arrangements, not only why children and young people are, are in lockdown and not in school, but also when they return and the, and the kind of issues that are going to emerge. And, and there's been a lot 
in the media and a lot of discussions around things like domestic abuse uh, of the potential of children being uh, sexually exploited or groomed online because they're spending more time time online. But uh, it's, it's useful for you to state as well the importance of, of being aware of those children and those vulnerable members of the community who may have also been uh, drawn into radicalization during this period as well, because um, it might might be one that schools maybe don't think of first. They think about the other safeguarding issues in terms of, you know, the family unit at home and about different types of online exploitation. But I think it's really important to, to keep that in mind as well is that they may see a, a spike in in prevent referrals once everyone comes back and, and some things come to light and they can start to ask those questions again. I think it's really important as well that people understand that prevent is one of a number of different types of safeguarding. So you know we work with a range of other sectors who are involved with whether it's you know other forms of child abuse, uh, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, those charities support victims of child sexual exploitation. So what we will do is we will look for wider signs and wider harms that are going on in someone's life. Often it's not just radicalization that is affecting somebody. Or if they've been drawn into radicalization or they've been drawn towards a gang or other forms of grooming, there will often be some other underlying issue for that person that's making them vulnerable. That could be complex needs uh, in their life. It could be um, mental illness. It could be autism spectrum disorders that make people more liable to fixate. It could be things that make people need and long for a sense of belonging because they've not had the sort of nurturing family environment that you or I might have, have had the benefit of when we we're growing up. There's a whole host of things that can be going on that draw people into one of a number of forms of, of harm where they're then exploited by bad people, essentially, and prevent as one of those strands of safeguarding. We'll look for those other things as well as uh, the radicalization concept. So if somebody's not sure, I suppose my message is make sure that you know you make a referral, you get some help. If somebody needs some wider help, or if ultimately we decide the concern isn't a prevent-related one, but it relates to gang-related involvement, for example, we will signpost people to the other help and specialist help that, that they need. So, you know, we're not asking people to become experts in any of this stuff, but where you're concerned for somebody, then pick up the, pick up the phone, make a referral, um, and, and let those uh, professionals that are dealing with these sorts of issues day in, day out, help you to make those assessments and get people the help they need. Thanks, Nick. Really important, as you said there, you know, it's part of safeguarding and to, and to always view it in that way, which, of course, schools do a fantastic job on. They are incredibly good at safeguarding. And, and even so now in the current climate of, of not even having the children at school all the time, it's, uh, it's really important to keep that going as much as possible. So what advice could you give to, to professionals um, about how they can support young people, both uh, now in the absence of regular contact and face-to-face -face contact, but also once students start to return to school, how else can they support them as well? So we've been working really closely with the Department for Education during COVID, both to kind of manage the situation now and to plan for uh, that in the future. And as, as you touched on there, you know, schools have got an immense amount of experience of, of protecting young people from all forms of harm. So one of the things we've been doing is to advise parents to contact their dedicated safeguarding leads in school to get advice and support if they have particular concerns about young people. And a lot of our, our work at the moment is trying to get information to reach young people and their parents to help them make some of those, uh, some of those decisions. And then it's, you know, once those issues are raised with colleagues uh, at school, then it's working with local authorities, making referrals directly to local prevent teams where you have a concern about radicalisation so that we can come along, work with you and get the help that people need. One thing I've undertaken to do is to make sure that by... Um, the back end of the school summer holidays, we have produced for schools and particularly for dedicated safeguarding leads, an up-to-date overview of the sorts of things that we think young people 
might have been exposed to whilst they've been away from the school environment. And that, I hope, will help teachers and others in, in care roles within in school to spot those worrying signs that might be different to the sorts of things that young people were perhaps talking about before the COVID lockdown period started. So, you know, we're really keen to get that right information into people. But then it's following all of the same prevent and safeguarding processes that colleagues would normally use in order to flag those concerns and, and get the help that people might need. So, Nick, many, many people listening are familiar with the fact it's important to make referrals to prevent if you have concerns around a young person or someone else in your community. Some people listening may have even made referrals themselves, depending on their role in school. But um, I imagine not so many people are so familiar with the, the process and the journey of a referral after they've made it. Could you explain a bit more about that, please? Yeah, of course. And I think, you know, I recognise that it's really important that colleagues understand the process in order for them to have the sort of trust and confidence in it that they need to be able to make referrals, particularly about early concerns. I think the first thing to say is that a referral into prevent does not generate a criminal record for anybody. That only takes place, somebody only gets a criminal record if they are ultimately investigated and prosecuted for a crime. So, you know, that's the first thing I want to lay down. The next thing that's really important is that colleagues, when they've got a concern, go through the process of first noticing that concern and then checking out whether or not that is a, uh, appears to be a genuine concern and only then sharing that that concern with us. And and by checking, what I mean is having those sorts of um, conversations, whether on a one-to-one basis or a debate in the classroom, where you can begin to understand whether or not somebody is simply repeating or regurgitating something that they've heard or seen, or whether they're actually displaying and describing a really entrenched view of something that is concerning, whether that's a hate-filled view uh, or one that you know leads you to suspect that somebody may be being radicalised. And only in those cases would we want and expect colleagues to make a referral. So there is no automatic requirement or expectation that people refer somebody every time they mention the word ISIS or have a discussion about terrorism in the classroom When we receive a referral, the first thing we're going to do with that is an initial assessment and some checks. And that's to make sure that that concern that the colleague has spotted isn't indicative of either something that's more serious or something that we already know something about. So is that a young person who's living in a household where there is already an investigation into other members of that young person's family or potentially their friends who might be influencing them because that will shape the sort of intervention and when we when we intervene but in the vast majority of cases we generally find that there's absolutely nothing else of concern going on and we would progress then to make a a more in-depth assessment of uh, the needs of that young person we do that by writing out to uh, other professionals that might have worked with them so social workers gps we would get back in contact with the school or college we may talk to family and friends and we try and understand the fuller picture of of what's been going on so the stuff that school potentially can't see and doesn't have access to and only then if we see that there are a number of risk factors in play would we take a case forward to the channel program, which is the program in which a team of experts from a whole range of different sectors will sit around the table, not dissimilar to any other former case conference, and discuss the needs of an individual and come up with a care plan, support plan that will hopefully divert that that young person away from radicalisation, away from terrorism. And for Channel to Work, it's, as I said, right at the beginning of this interview, it's a, it's a voluntary programme, it's a voluntary process. So people need to be willing to engage in that and their families need to be willing to engage in that to get support. We don't force anybody to go through the Channel programme who doesn't want to. 
What we often find, though, is that underlying people's vulnerabilities are often mental ill health issues or um, a range of complex needs that have that have affected them in their life that is often drawing or driving somebody's need to belong to a particular group or feel a sense of purpose or achievement. And we also, within counsellors and policing, have dedicated mental health professionals um, and social workers who help advise police officers on the specific needs of individuals and the management of those cases. And that's to make sure that we, you know, as police officers, we're not experts in all this stuff. So we make sure that we get people the right help and support at the right time, ultimately, all geared up to diverting people away from terrorism. I suppose the final thing I'll say is that in certain cases, when we, when we receive those referrals and we, and we work our way through what the needs and issues are, we find that whilst we could see quite legitimately why a colleague was concerned about radicalisation, that actually the driving influence for this particular individual is not a radicalising one, but is, as I've just described, a kind of mental ill health issue uh, or something that makes them liable to, to fixate or fascinate. And it's in those cases that we would divert those people completely away from prevent and into the other services that can support them. So in short, we receive a referral, we'll do an initial assessment. For those cases that look like they need protection from radicalisation, we work with a whole range of partners to put that protection in place. And where somebody has some other safeguarding need, but it isn't a prevent one, we'll divert those cases out to the relevant services that can help them. Thanks, Nick. I think that really helps people understand the way it fits in uh, very nicely with the contextual safeguarding that schools do already. Um, and also the, the important part and the role that's, that schools play, not just in making referrals, but in that process further down the line in terms of supporting young people or members of the community that are affected and do need that help and support in whatever may, uh, form or shape it may take. Schools uh, in England and Wales under the prevent duty have to ensure appropriate filtering and monitoring to block content related to terrorism and extremism and radicalisation uh, through the school networks. What work has the police done to help those internet service providers that provide internet connections for schools to, to, to make sure that they are blocking the stuff that shouldn't be allowed through? So I suppose in short, I touched on the, the counter-terrorism internet referral unit earlier. They have a wealth of knowledge about the sorts of sites, some of which we can't control because of, uh, of where they're based around the world. But they have immense amount of, of knowledge and expertise around that. And we provide information along with other partners into the kind of filtering processes so that the right content is being screened out. And, and I know that is continually uh, updated, the sort of um, the filter lists to make sure that new content, as we're finding it, is included on those lists so that it can also be um, screened out by the software. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. And uh, it's a good point just to mention here that at SWGFL, we have a website that you can use within school to test whether or not your, your filtering in school is drawing from those lists correctly and is blocking the stuff that it should be blocking. And you can visit that at testfiltering.com, type in your organization name and postcode, and then you can actually run a test. Probably best to try running that within school rather than out of school because you, you may get slightly different results there. Uh, Nick, just one final question. There have been critics over the years of the prevent strategy. As, as part of the wider channel programme. What would you say to those critics? I, think, I mean, hopefully, as we've demonstrated today, kind of chatting this through, that people can see they have absolutely nothing to fear from Prevent and that it is, it is a, a programme that's designed to help and support people. And it does no more, no less than any other safeguarding mechanism in protecting people from the harms that particularly young people and vulnerable people face in their in their everyday lives. You know, as I touched on when I was describing the process, it is a process that is designed and the programme is designed to avoid people from becoming criminalised and, and to stop people from being drawn into criminal activity. And the first guiding principles of 
British policing, the Peelian principle set out by Sir Robert Peel, talk very powerfully about that prevention is better than uh, detection. And that, you know, still goes to the heart of what we do. So prevent from a policing point of view, just because the police are involved doesn't mean that we're not part of that that same kind of safeguarding, early intervention and sort of protective framework that other areas of safeguarding are. It's important that the, that the police are involved in prevent because we also need to understand how people are being radicalised, who's doing that radicalising, so that as policing, we can intervene and we can robustly manage and where we can prosecute those individuals to stop them from having a radicalising influence on others. It's really important that people understand that our primary aim is to divert people away from terrorism and radicalisation before they cross a criminal line. I think one of the things that's really powerful in in this that, that people won't know is that over a quarter of our referrals into Prevent come from counter-terrorism policing itself. So that's where we, we're conducting an investigation and we identify people that are under the influence of somebody who's being investigated or where we investigate somebody and we find that whilst they have started on a journey towards terrorism, a better outcome for them and for their community and for their family will be to try and divert them rather than prosecute them. So 25% of all of our casework comes from those sorts of situations where counter-terrorism policing investigation colleagues are seeking to divert people away from needing to be prosecuted and then put into prison and all of the, all of the harm that is then done to that individual's life. Now, that's obviously balanced very finely with the need to keep the public safe. I think it just goes to the heart of showing where our focus is. Our focus in Prevent as police officers is working with partners to make sure that we divert as many people as possible from this uh, dangerous path towards uh, terrorism so we can keep people safe and we can give them opportunities in life um, that they might otherwise throw away. Very well said, and, and I'm sure lots of people listening will, will totally agree and, uh, and understand that approach all too well. Uh, Nick, any final thoughts before we end this podcast? I think we've covered loads of stuff there, haven't we? Which has been, uh, it's a great opportunity and, and probably to help people digest some of that in a way that isn't me waffling on would be to signpost people to our Let's Talk About It website, which is www.ltai.info. And on that site, parents and carers and families and professionals can find lots more information, not just about uh, the work that we do, but also the signs of radicalization, how to get help. There are also some other great assets out there on websites like those hosted by the NSPCC and Internet Matters. Those sorts of places help people to navigate, well, both spot signs and then navigate those sorts of tricky conversations that we've talked about that help people to determine whether or not there is something to be genuinely concerned about. So the information um, you know, is out there. I'd really urge colleagues to just spend a little bit of time digesting that. And then when we get our updated COVID-related kind of risks guidance out to colleagues later this summer, again, urge people to take some time just to read and digest that, share it with colleagues across your institutions, um, so that then together we can, as quickly as possible, identify those vulnerable young people who potentially been radicalised during the COVID period and get them the help that they need. Brilliant. Great links there, Nick. All, all really useful websites and very accessible as well. Nick, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your, what I imagine is a very busy schedule at the moment, to, to come and talk about this. It's uh, greatly appreciated, and I'm sure lots of people listening have, uh, have found it very useful today. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this SWGFL podcast. If you found our podcast helpful, please do spread the word to your fellow educators. This free podcast is available on most casting apps. Remember, if you have a query about an online safety issue affecting a young person, yourself or your organisation, you can contact our Professionals Online Safety Helpline at helpline, 
at saferinternet.org.uk or by calling 0344 381 4772. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast, don't forget to drop us an email at podcast at swgfl.org.uk. Remember, a better internet starts with you. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time. Goodbye. This Safeguarding Children online podcast has been produced by SWGFL. Southwest Grid for Learning is a charity that has specialised in online safety for nearly 20 years and is one of the three partners in the UK Safer Internet Centre. The UK Safer Internet Centre is the national centre and one of 32 European Safer Internet Centres. For more information and terms of use, please visit www.swgfl.org.uk. Thanks for listening.